Welcome to the Science of Performance. This is a new podcast in the Free Trail Network sponsored by Bow Technology. My name is Dan Feeney and I'm going to be your host. Just a little background on me before I can talk about all the interesting guests that we are going to have on this season. I did a PhD in neuromechanics from the University of Colorado Boulder and I spent the last five years building a biomechanics laboratory at Bow Technology. We work with most of the leading brands across the world, and we've tested a number of different pieces of footwear, everything from snowboarding boots, alpine ski boots, to trail running shoes. I want to take you into a lot of the learnings that I've learned over these last five years, exposing some of the nuances, some of the areas where the science is gray, and really challenging some of the assumptions that I think are out there. I'm really excited to have you on this journey, and please leave comments and thoughts as to what you liked and what you don't like. Hello, everyone. You're listening to another episode of The Science of Performance, a new podcast in the Free Trail Network sponsored by Boa Technology. I'm your host, Dan Feeney, and during this podcast, we're dissecting the fundamentals of peak performance from footwear development, the biomechanics of footwear, the physiology of training, and more, with an emphasis on challenging decade-old assumptions about what works and what doesn't work. Today, I'm really excited to have Dave Dombrow and Kevin Fallon here, founders of Speedland, formerly working at famous brands all over the world, from Nike to Under Armour to Puma, having developed probably a lot of footwear that most of you have had on your feet at some point or another. I'm really excited to talk to these two guys, hear a little bit about how they have used biomechanics and how they haven't used biomechanics in the past. So thanks so much for coming on the show, guys. Thanks for having us. So these guys have been on a ton of podcasts recently, and I don't really want to just um, reiterate the same old things. And so with that, we're going to try to ask a few bit, a bit more contentious and just sort of probing type of questions here. Um, Kevin, you start, a few months ago, you put out an article on LinkedIn and both of your social media, you put out a number of posts showing some of the development of the GSTAM. And can you guys talk a little bit about the development, maybe kind of a development for dummies, if you want to talk about lasting, if you want to talk about tooling and how these shoes go from the designs that you guys made to actually being on the footwear that people see in the stores? Sure. Oh, yeah. Um, well, let, let's maybe I'll start just at the very beginning, and then we'll jump into kind of how the the process works. I think the first thing that everybody should know is it starts with a uh, you have to have some sort of um, let's say problem or something you're trying to solve, and what I mean by that is it, it could be very broad, um, and this is in a big company or a small company. It doesn't really matter. You know, you could say something like. Uh, our objective is to create the fastest running shoe in the world. You know, that would be a very broad goal um, and very hard goal. But um, versus something could be a bit more um, uh, pointed where you could say uh, we want to create the lightest weight running shoe in the world. You know, it's a, it's a different goal and it, and it has a bit more of a different objective. So in anything, um, we, we start and I'll take it back to Speedland. um you start in a similar way, and in, in our case, you, we want to create the best um, trail product, trail equipment out there. And the way we approached it um, initially and, and still today is we break everything down into different functions. So whether that's traction or fit or cushioning or propulsion, and we look at these attributes and um, we discuss... Uh, among ourselves and others, uh, how, what's the best way to solve these and optimize these in different ways. And, 
And that often leads us to partners, um, you know, like BOA. So that, that's, that's the way really we really begin. I, I, I will say there's another way, and we'll probably get into this later, where you could have um, data, let's say, from the lab uh, that comes in, and that could actually inform what you want to do in, in the project, right? So there's kind of different ways to approach it. But for us, that's in a broad way. That's, that's what we're first looking at is how can we optimize these different functions um, and create the best of the best trail product out there? You want to add, add to that, Kevin? Well, there's, yeah, I'd add a couple of things, you know, when it comes to, you know, having made that decision that we were going to go into trail footwear and our approach was really how do we optimize all of these functional areas to make the best trail shoe? It comes back you know, to some of the simple nuts and bolts of shoe building. And that starts with the last. Um, so you have to make some decisions around that. The last is the foot form around which a shoe is created. And it really acts as a foundation for a lot of different things uh, and fit and comfort being being one of them. And so you have to start somewhere. And, and often that starts with, hey, I like the fit of this shoe, but I want it to be a little wider in the toe box or a little narrower in the heel. And so there's really a mix of art and science in last building. And that's that's where we started because you, you have to start there. You need a last to build a product to, to test to start. So we started with, you know, sort of a combination of things that we felt would make for a great trail shoe. And you begin the iteration process. You know, you build some shoes, you find things work as you wanted and you didn't and you refine them. This process took place on our first model, the SL until we felt like we had, uh, you know, the fit in a place where we wanted. And there's choices to make here, right? Because if we look at our market, there's narrow, like I'll, I'll call them performance fits that you might find in a typical Solomon product, for instance, where they're known to be pretty snug and, and tight fitting. And peop some people really like that from the sense of there's no slop inside and it feels like a performance product. On the other end of the spectrum, you might have a brand like Topo or Alta, where they're ultra where they're um wider toe boxes and that's that's what they do and it's accommodating swelling feet over long races or people with wide feet and you know you have to find your place within that spectrum so that was our process getting to a last is balancing those different functionalities what kind of heel to toe drop do you want i mean this is an area that, that we could get into deeply we personally think it's a little bit over revved on. Some people say, oh, I can only run in this heel to toe drop. And I think what people don't realize is tolerances in footwear are plus or minus two millimeters. So one shoe to the next could be, you know, quite a bit different if you're talking millimeters. Um, so anyway, but there's still choices you have to make that are engineered into the last and into the tooling. And so, um, you know, we, we kind of got that part right. And the TAM really evolved out of the SL and feedback from our athletes in terms of, hey, we like the SL for the, let's say, middle distances. For the 100 mile, we'd love a little bit more cushioning. And so we kind of took that foundation that we had built with the SL and we looked at what was happening in that, we'll call it max cushion market and, you know, wanted to improve one of the things we tried to do, for instance, is make a more stable max cushion shoe. As you go higher, it tends to be less stable. You're falling off the platform easier. So we worked really hard to put the foot deep within that um, cushioning platform. We use nets that are a little bit wider in the effort to not compromise stability as we offered that max cushion performance platform. So, you know, it was kind of an evolution of what we had started with and with input from our athletes 
updates on what problem we were going to solve for that next uh, product. Nice. You you brought up basically all the points that I wanted to hit on th- more specifically throughout the rest of this conversation. So that's super awesome. If we kind of start with this idea of the last, um, I think a lot of people have a general sense that shoes are built around a last. But could you maybe talk through what it go what goes into making a last? You know, we have them sitting around the office of Boa. They're literal foot shapes of things. And then when you're in a factory, how are those things actually used to to put the shoes together? Yeah, I, that that's a great question. I mean, essentially, um, lasts are you know, supposed to mimic the shape of the foot. The irony is they don't look a lot like foot, but, um, nevertheless, they, they have evolved to, um, be the platform around with the shoes are built. So uppers, meaning the, the soft uh, part of the shoe on top is, you know, generally cut and sew type materials, rolled goods that are cut into patterns and stitched together. And then they're what's called lasted around the last. Uh, so th- somehow that material has to go from being flat goods into this 3D compound curvature shape that fits around your foot. There's, there's multiple methods for lasting. Um, kind of the old way was board lasting where that material was grabbed by a series of pincers and mechanically pulled around the last and then glued or nailed to a lasting board, which sat under your foot. Um, still used today for, for a cleated product. Um, it does a really good job of pulling that material super tight and taking the stretch out of the material and offering, you know, sort of a one-to-one match to the last. Um, but more often today, strobel lasting is used where the upper is stitched to a, a, a strobel board, it's called. Again, the material that sits underneath the foot. And then the last is kind of forced into this stitched together form. And then through a process of gluing on the bottoms and heat pressing different areas, it, it takes on that 3D shape. So strobel lasting is lighter. It's a little bit easier. It's not easy, but it's easier than board lasting in a lot of ways. And um, you don't have a rigid board under the foot, so it tends to be used a lot more in athletic product. It's not quite as good as forming the 3D shape in the upper. You really have to go to great lengths to make sure like the toe, for instance, is quite a tight radius. And if you strobe last that shoe and then just pull the last out quickly, sometimes that material wants to deform back into flat materials. And so it can lead to shallow toe boxes and ill-fitting products. So there's a kind of an art form that comes with um, any kind of lasting really, but uh, in terms of strobe lasting to make sure that once the shoe is delasted, in other words, that, that 3D plastic form is taken out of the interior volume, that it stays that same shape. So um, a lot of these shoemaking processes actually lead to, let's say, things and materials being in shoes that don't necessarily need to be there, but they make the creation process a little bit easier, if that makes sense. I'll just... I think it's interesting for us that that one thing to touch on is that we made our, so our, our product is constructed a bit differently where we have a a thick drop in uh, midsole that sits right under your foot. And um, what's, I guess somewhat unique in the sense is like we made our own, I mean, every last that's made is made unique, but we made our own last, like literally modeled it (laughs) in a shop. And um, that's a bit unusual. Typically, what happens is you have a company that works with a 
um, an expert last maker. And there's a, there's a, a few different companies, and and then that last that last maker that expert delivers kind of this is your last. Um, in our case, uh, we actually because our construction is unique, we found it advantageous and needed to b build the last ourselves, um, which is part art, part science, um, heavily uh, modeling in a shop. So just a, a different approach altogether. We really built this thing uh, from the inside out and from the ground up. So. Yeah, I'd, like, I'd love to circle back to that, but I want to finish the last at the factory question that you started with, Dan, because what, what I think people don't realize is, you know, you're making a typical size run is 18 sizes, right? If you think of every half size from a five to a 14, there's 18 sizes. So you need a last for every one of those sizes. And then you have to consider the volume of product that you're making. And, you know, factories love to make a lot of products. So if you're talking a big brand, you know, there's thousands of pairs being made, which means you need to have lasts. Like you can reuse the last, of course, but if you think of the length of a production line, there's often hundreds of pairs of shoes on the line at one given time that need to be on the last. So you get into thousands of pairs of lasts that need to be made in order to create one shoe. So it's a real cost and it's a real, um, you know, serious thing to develop. Let's say you don't do it casually because once that last is made and you've got thousands of them in a factory, you don't want to just change that last the next uh, production run or, you know, just on a whim, right? So it's a, it's a pretty interesting thing to see that, you know, you think of this last as a singular thing, but when you're in a factory, there's, there's thousands of them all over and they're, um, you know, organized by size and, the, and, and what type of last it is. And you kind of uh, want to keep that last around as long as you can. Yeah. The first time yeah, I got to see, want... sorry, go ahead, Dave. Oh, I was just say you also want to keep it around because runners get used to a certain shape and last. And if you go ahead and change it, it, it creates huge problems, right, in the marketplace. So. Absolutely. The, the first time I got to see what lasting of footwear looked like in person, it was kind of mind blowing. And so I encourage readers and I'll, I'll find a video and put it in the show notes for people to take a look at what this looks like, all the shoes and, and how they're put together. Maybe a more pointed question, going from the SL to the GS, did you guys change your actual last or did you do other things in the shoes to make it fit slightly differently? Right. So, Go ahead, Kevin. Well, I would say we, we kept the last the same. Um, you know, you're always, well, we are at least, you're looking for ways to improve the shoe. And if necessary to change the last, sometimes you have to do that. Um, I think we were, you know, I would like to say part luck and, and part maybe being careful from the beginning with our testing. We, we, we got the last pretty right the first time. And one of the, and I, and I say that based on the feedback we got from athletes and, and consumers who've worn our product, one of the more consistent things we've had is people love the fit of our product. And a portion of that is to do with the construction and the BOA closure system and another Part of that is to do with the last itself. So we didn't feel a need to change the last. We also love the idea that between our two models, 
there's a consistency of fit. So whether you want to change from one one day to another the next, or even within a race, you have consistency there. And to Dave's point earlier, we know from running consumers, man, they hate when you change the fit and, and it goes the wrong way for them. I mean, if you improve the fit, that's great. But I think there's always the risk that if you improve it for one person, you might, uh, you know, not improve it for others. And so it's a, it's a very careful game of um, making sure, you know, looking at data, looking at the right consumer that you're trying to target for a given product and making sure that, yeah, the last change is really what's going to help me make this product better because there's a lot of other levers to pull. Dave, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? No, I think that, I think Kevin summed it up. That's exactly right. No. Okay. Yeah. So then I'd love to kind of talk about the next piece. Oh, go ahead to Kevin. If you had something else to say. Well, I, I was going to circle back to the point Dave was making earlier about our drop in midsole, which is not typical. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we've heard from a few customers is, oh, this isn't compatible with orthotics or over-the-counter insoles. And that can be seen as a negative. And we get that. But what we have seen is typically in a, in a normal constructed strobel shoe, there's a, I don't know, two to five millimeter sock liner. And this is really, in a way, a piece that just covers the shoemaking process. Like it covers up your strobel stitching inside and it sort of gives you something that's more comfortable to stand on. What also happens in the industry that we know really well is this is one of the first pieces that gets despecced that gets taken down to the cheapest foams and the less expensive piece because it's internal and a lot of people don't consider it to be important. And as a result, there's a huge, uh, you know, insole market aftermarket insoles. So the irony is people will spend 120, 150 or more on a pair of shoes. They'll take out a very cheap sock liner and, spend another 50 to $80 on the insole and put it in inside. And I'm not talking about custom orthotics. That's a little different lane, but the, this to us suggests, you know, that why not just put a better insole in to begin with? And of course it has to do with price and the way that the market's been kind of trained to look for these key price points and everything else. And so our process was if we're going to spend a lot of money on the best foams that we can find, let's get them as close to the foot as we can. So they feel great and they're going to last longer. And we're not necessarily just using it as a band-aid to cover up the footwear making process. So beyond that, we also integrated kind of a removable plate system in there to give the structure when you want it and to be able to take it out and customize it when you don't. So our approach was quite different. It led to a very different last because the last has to account for the thickness of the sock liner. So that's just kind of a, another like shoemaking detail that if you spec a five millimeter sock liner that is built onto the last and you take it down to a two millimeter sock liner for the next version of that shoe, you're going to have three millimeters of extra volume in the shoe. It's going to fit drastically different. It sounds like a small amount, but those little things make a big difference. And this is where people who do put in custom insoles or put in over-the-counter insoles run into problems because if it doesn't match the thickness 
that the shoe came with, now it fits completely differently. So, you know, you can use that to your advantage, a low volume foot, you know, put in another sock liner and now the shoe might fit better. But it's, um, if you don't kind of understand that shoe making process, you wonder why the shoe doesn't fit or why everyone else loves the shoe and you hate it when you put in your custom insole. So we, um, we, we kind of, you know, don't allow people to play in the speed land if you have custom insoles, but we think for everybody else that that experience is just much better um, to have that great foam right underfoot. Yeah, and I think a, an interesting piece of that, you're kind of encouraging people to do a bit of their own speed hack of their own, which is... Um, we do. Yeah. Yes. And I think that's really cool, and it, it kind of segues to the next point. Dave, maybe if you could talk a little bit about, like, what the heck is tooling when brands talk about opening up tooling to make the midsole, outsole foam, and then how does that differ for what you guys are doing? Because that'll lead into something, you know, Kevin, you talked about earlier. We have tolerances. Not everything is perfectly made. And so when we think about the shape of something, how does that, like, how do we get the foam on the bottom of our shoes? Yeah, well, typically when you're talking about tooling, right, you're talking about, midsoles which is you know the the foam kind of under your foot and then you're talking about outsoles the the rubber the traction um that's being adhered to the bottom of the the foot um footwear and you know in our case we have two midsoles um actually on both of our both of our products but we have an outer midsole which is a pbax beaded uh foam and then we have a drop-in which is a, a blend um and part backs as well. And so, you know, again, we, we tend to put, um, let's say, use the best foams and put <laughs> uh, as much of uh, money as we can into the best, best components. So that, when you're talking about tooling, that's what people are generally referring to. And, and, you know, as Kevin touched on earlier with the last, where you have all these different sizes, same goes for tooling. So that's why tooling gets so expensive, right? We're talking about uh, if you're going every half size, you can imagine when you're doing a size run from five to 14, um, like we are, you know, how much cost is involved in that? Cause that each one of those, uh, half sizes is, is an individual mold, right? Mm -hmm. So it gets, it gets quite, um, quite expensive, but that's, that's what tooling is about. And then, um, like you touched on and we can go deeper into this, uh, there's there's typically this old uh, phrase in footwear of like oh well, there's a plus or minus like three tolerance, which when when you think about that um, that's an that's an interesting thing to think about and that that's changed I mean that's an old old kind of thing that was said when we were talking about um, specifically like injection EVA midsoles right um, but plus or minus three that's I mean. For me, that's 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 actually quite a lot. Um, yeah. So the, <laughs> and that and and then when you start to think about that, that oh yeah, well like it, this could be it could how your upper sits um, into the tooling could be at a different spot, and the overall length could be at a different spot. Um, you know, but three millimeters is is quite a bit. So, um, and what the reality is though it all goes back to the process right so that isn't a statement that's made about a certain process not all processes are created equal um and when you start talking about compression um and uh different toolings that don't involve expansion uh the plus or minus three may might go to plus or minus one or or even less so um 
there's a there's a lot involved in tooling and a lot of nuances. Um, but in in our case, uh, we're all about precision. So we're always looking to how can we kind of there's always going to be variances, but how can we get as precise as possible in, within the footwear game? So. Yeah, I think that's really cool. And, you know, runners, as you said, we'd love to geek out about, oh, well, I run in a zero drop or a four drop shoe. And I, I read comments on Instagram all the time. And hmm. I totally respect when it works for somebody that they don't want to change because we all want to be out there on the trails and, and running happy. I get that. On the flip side, I think it's almost an interesting point when you start introducing like, hey, there is some variability and you've probably been running in it and experiencing it. You've been OK. Um, on the flip side, I told one of my friends this, and he de- designed a device to then measure at the running shoe store the heel-to-toe drop uh, <laughs> instead of just accepting that maybe it would be okay either way. Um, well, the, the other, the other, yeah, that's funny. That's going to extremes right there. Oh, the yeah. The other thing is, we're, as we're talking about variances, I just want to touch on, and I'm sure Kevin will talk about this too, is um, – you know, the, the, there's the measurement variances, and then there's also the measurement variances when it comes to durometer, right? So there's there's times when, say, we have a spec of say 45 durometer, but you know, there's 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 always usually a, a plus or minus two either way, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're 45, you could be 43, but you also could be 47. And the other thing that you have to then take into account of that is if if one product is 43 and the other one is 47. Uh, that actually will affect the weight, not just mm-hmm. the hardness. So often, you know, and I don't think, you know, maybe the, the general runner customer thinks about this, but if they weigh two different their shoes, they might have actually a, a different weight between those two, uh, the right and the left, which is, you know, a little bit shocking as well. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and I would say, and Dan, you can probably talk about this even more than we can, but, you know, it's one thing to engineer to a certain heel ball offset. You know, the last is, again, that's another spec that's built into the last. The tooling is supposed to match a certain offset, right? And if it's a five mil offset and you take that last up to an eight mil offset, now your toe spring is reduced. And so you can do things like that, but really you're not supposed to from a last making standpoint and so so there's that spec there's the variability in the construction of materials as dave mentioned and then i would also just say you know the static measurement is also different than when you put the shoe on which is really what matters Mm -hmm. and so this is where durometer can have a huge influence how you stand uh, you know, or do you stand on your forefoot or do you rock back on your heels? Because right there you could take uh, an eight millimeter offset to a zero offset standing in the shoe. And I don't think this, in my under- understanding, this is not a well understood thing. Like you start at one point, but what actually happens through a run? Mm-hmm. And then in a long run, materials compact in different ways based on your foot strike as well. So then there's a beginning of the run versus the end of the run effect, which is also not really well studied um, because materials are constantly changing. I'm sure it's a really difficult thing to do. However, it's just to the point of, I, I feel like it's a really over indexed on point. People love to geek out on it. And if that's your thing, you know, you think you have a certain zone, that's great, you know, but um, I think people don't really realize how imprecise that can be, especially when you talk about the dynamics of it. Absolutely. And I encourage people just to maybe 
be a little bit more open to trying different things. Um, there's a, a guy that I work with, Eric Conert. He published a paper, and they looked at the amount of work that actually occurs at the foot shoe versus the ankle throughout the course of an hour-long run. And probably not surprisingly, you want work happening more at your ankle because you've got your big, strong uh, calf muscles there. Over the course of the run, as people got a bit more tired, more work was getting pushed over to the shoe and foot. And that could mean a variety of different things. But what it certainly means is you're, you're changing how you're running over the course of that one hour long run. And most people listening to this probably run a lot longer than that. So even just what you try statically is going to change. The other kind of interesting thing that I've you know, personally experienced, we can calculate what we call the foot rollover shape when we actually take these runners into the lab. And what this is, it, it kind of takes all the variables you guys talked about. So the toe spring, right, which is sort of like the amount that the toes are pointed up a bit that allows us to roll through the stride a little bit more effectively. It takes the heel to toe drop. It takes the geometer into account. And it tells us where are we applying force versus where is our ankle over the course of the run. And to me, that's sort of like the output that actually is probably more like what runners are experiencing. So I have never had a lot of success with zero drop shoes. And then I, I recently ran in an ultra shoe that had a bigger kind of midfoot, and I was able to run in it without Achilles issues. Um, so just anecdotally, my guess is it probably changed my rollover shape to something I was more comfortable with. Um, yeah. And so kind of moving into that, we've talked about there's a bit of a margin of error. There is, you know, when you go into a commercialization of shoes, I've seen this, I know you guys have seen this, the calendars to make a shoe over 18 months are literally scheduled down to the day. Um, I think the first time I saw this, we're working in the footwear industry, seeing, oh, we've got two days to do this inspection, to go, go to market analysis. It's really intimidating. Most consumers, I think, just think a shoe gets <laughs> recycled or, or something like that. Of course, not Speedland. But um, with that, you know, with exactly how tight of scheduling it is, maybe you guys could talk about some of the most pressure-filled moments and then where you can squeeze in biomechanics testing, if at all, during that incredibly crowded time frame. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a great point, and I think we would have to answer that in a couple of ways. Uh, first is like the typical product creation cycle at a big brand, and then maybe our approach, because I think it's a, a little bit different in a couple of important ways. So the big brands generally have biomechanics labs, and they have the ability to, to test in that way. However, not every product is going to be tested that way. I would say... In fact, only if a product is a, a brand new model and or it is attempting something quite different uh, than anything that came before it, um, simply because there's so many SKUs and the calendar is so tight, so they can't test everything. So, you know, and, and I, I would guess like if you're testing a Pegasus 34, um, you know, if it's not that different from the 33, there's a lot of knowns in there. The last is well sorted out by then. The midsole foams, if they're not changing, if the nets aren't changing significantly, you know, there's there's no real reason for them to go through that testing. There's higher priorities in terms of what they could learn from probably testing other product. So, you know, but but generally the window for biomechanics testing is pretty short. Oh, yeah. And you know, if, if you get it at all. Um, and this is part of what I think is a bit of an Achilles heel, uh, to make a dad pun, uh, of these big brands is that relentless flow of product means 
you know, sometimes the product is being redesigned before the product before it is really even in the market. Um, mm-hmm. It's in, you know, an 18 month calendar that you're on from getting a brief to when that product hit the shelf. So it's um, sometimes a, you might have a little bit of anecdotal information from a wear test. You might have a good hunch that, oh, that material didn't hold up as well as we thought or something. But in general, it's a it's a really intense period. There's many intense periods, but once you get to sort of the end of the window, let's say, there's a time where the tooling has to stop being revised. There's a time when the upper has to stop being revised if you're going to make your commercialization schedule. And I would guess, I'm taking kind of a guess here, but probably eight out of 10 times, there's more changes that the team would like to make, but they have to move. It's either that or the product doesn't make it. So, and sometimes there's going to be small changes like, oh, I wish I could have done just a little bit more. And sometimes it's kind of like, hmm, it's not exactly the way we wanted it, but it's good enough and, and you move forward. You know, not super critical products, if they're really important, like they'll squeeze the calendar they'll they'll find other ways to do it but it is a a relentless flow and the biomechanics time sometimes it's two weeks you know on on a good on a good window i would say and when you talk about setting up equipment getting subjects into a lab two weeks goes by like nothing never mind the data analysis side of things so and I, Dan, you can probably speak to this too. I know that oftentimes when that calendar does get crunched, like the product team says, oh, I need a little bit more time. That is one of the things that'll get cut out. And so it's, it's an unfortunate part of it, but the science is often um, one of those things where they say, oh, well, we're going to rely on our industry knowledge or, you know, the, the factory is going to help sort, sort this out for us. Um, so I would say very few projects are truly science led. Yeah, it, I mean, there's a joke we used to say, and then I actually recently heard it on another podcast uh, that Brooks, their research lab, was talking about. We typically are basically asked to do a master's thesis in two weeks. That's sort of the, the standard turnaround. Yeah. Like, if you want to get your master's, typically you collect a bunch of you know marker data, force data on athletes, maybe ten to fifteen of them, and you analyze it, and that's a two-year project. Uh, when you come to the lab, that's a two-week turnaround. Um, because exactly to your point, if you want to have any chance at affecting anything, it has to be compressed. Well, it's a tricky thing with science, right? And particularly with the human body, which is so adaptable. I mean, I have seen and been a part of some of those really long studies. We did one, uh, it was almost two years, looking at the different heel ball offsets at Under Armour, building different lasts and building different toolings for those lasts and allowing the science to test that. And and basically, when a test like that comes back pretty much inconclusive, a lot of people take that in a way of like, well, I could wait for the science, but I might not get an answer anyway, so I'm just not going to do this. And I don't particularly think that's the right approach, but I understand why some people get this you know, it's balancing the science and the academic side versus the commerciality and, and having a brand and needing to get product or feeling like you need to get product in the market. So there's always a push and a pull. And um, I think in a way that's a good thing. Like I've heard the analogy, you know, a guitar string without tension doesn't play. You kind of need some of these tension points within the process in order to get to the best thing. And you have to find the projects where that science is going to 
you know, enlighten things and get you to someplace new. Like I said, looking at peak planter pressures on, you know, a peg 34 to 35 is probably not going to get anybody really any huge insights. Um, but for something like a new foam or a new airbag or something, you might, you might need to do some of that planter pressure to really figure out how this is working from that standpoint. So, um, it's a, it's a fine balance. And, um, you know, I think, you can look at it from both sides and, and on the commercial and business side and say, we need less of this. And you can look at it from the science side and say, how do we not have more of this? Yeah. I love the tension um, idea. Dave, how about you? Has, has there ever been times where biomechanics has either surprised aided, or maybe you've just been like, damn, the science is so annoying. <laughs> well, you know, I think, so I'll say a couple things. One, I think we didn't touch on is that, um, and I'll, and I'll answer that, uh, after is one key thing with, with Speedland is that we're seasonless. So we don't like this whole 18 month calendar and all this stuff. Like, yeah. yes, we're trying to make product. Yes. We're trying to put it out in the world, but at the same point, we don't actually have a, a date, like a drop to, you know, like when we need to have it in market, we're not selling to, you know, this or that. So it's quite a different business model than, um, so we just don't feel the same pressures, I guess. Like if, if we, if we need more testing in a lab or if we need more testing, um, with our athletes, we can continue doing that testing. So yeah, I think that's, I, I would important. also add to that, that we don't have a biomechanics lab, you know, we're a small right. company now, you know, we have partners and we've worked with you, Dan, and, and those kind of, uh, shared, science projects are great and have led to some interesting learnings. But for us, I think the far more important thing is our athlete testers, you know, our, our elite athlete team, they are the people who, um, you know, they're not biomechanists, but they've sure spent a lot of time in running shoes and a lot of time on the trail and they can put more miles in a couple of weeks than, you know, most people put in, in a month. And, and so for us, their feedback is what matters. And I think that's also a thing in a big brand where sometimes the, um, mechanical testing, you know, the impact testing they do with the machine or a flex testing they do with the machine is what they rely on because they're quick tests and they come from the factory and they're relatively easy as opposed to what we do, which is we're going to rely on the input from our athletes. Um, one, because, you know, that's what ultimately matters and two, they're experts. So that helps us build the relationship and the trust with those athletes. But ultimately, that's um, another way to, to validate product that is maybe not as science-based, but it's, um, based in, um, a trust, a relationship and, you know, real hardcore users. Yeah. And you guys have a big stable that you can kind of draw upon, which is really nice. I know, for example, in, in non-running related products I've worked on in the past, in the, this case that I'm thinking of, I won't get too specific, but there's an Olympian who they're like, look, I'm the best in the world. I don't want to change anything. And so in that case, they're actually a really bad product tester because right. every, everything new we tried, they're like, nope, just give me the old stuff. And so do you guys ever run into that or have you run into that at previous companies? I, yeah, I, I definitely have run into that when <clears throat> at Puma. <laughs> We're trying to do some, some pretty radical concepts for, um, for Bolt and, uh, and, you know, he, there was a kind of, he obviously was already the fastest uh, at that, at that time, the fastest person uh, in the world. And, um, so when we were trying to, 
let's say push something a bit further on on in the spike world um you know it it wasn't maybe even needed you know but we were trying to how can we make it a little bit better but that would actually the conversations then spun well he'd have to run a little bit differently so you know it's interesting to have to you know thinking you're going to tell uh usain bolt to to maybe you need to run a little bit differently you know it's like no you're it's not going to happen um the other thing you know that i think was interesting um coming out of the lab and coming from him um from the athlete themselves is in that case like he generated so much force um linear linear and lateral that uh, he actually needed a bit more of a built-up spike than maybe another runner so um i thought you know that was always an interesting insight because everybody's always going for the lightest 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 but in that case uh lightest was not going to be fastest for him um and i think that's just an interesting thing within in all shoes whether it's trail shoes you know basketball doesn't doesn't matter um light does not light's important but it doesn't always equal fast and um that's you know something that uh through tests can come out of the lab as well but also can come from the athlete so it's just um i don't know if a lot of uh runners always realize that they're especially with this obsession on lightweight <laughs> i think it's another aspect that's just easy to put a number to you know it's like heel to toe drop people yeah. can see it right we, as the three of us have talked probably number numerous times, you know, a hundred grams, 1% in at least running economy. That's a lot of weight or a lot of mass to cause a 1% change. Most of the shoes like within the trail space within a similar category are typically within, you know, 20 grams, for example. And what we know from the biomechanics world is if you're talking about less than a one or one and a half percent metabolic measurement, that's kind of within the noise. And, you know, as the three of us have chatted before, that mass, sometimes it could be doing something good for you. Otherwise, we would all just run barefoot. Um, I know personally, I, I couldn't imagine running barefoot with a zero gram shoe, right? Like I need something there. And um, so I think it is plagued a little bit by exactly that same uh, heel to toe drop thing. It's just nice for people to see. But maybe once you're down to a certain level, you have to find what works for you. Right. Yeah. I think yeah. if, you know, if you're chasing lightweight for a particular athlete, um, because that's what they've requested. Uh, that's one thing. I think when you're talking about like a mass market product, it's a little different. And we, we went around and around on that because, you know, you have to be competitive within a certain space, right? If you're too heavy, then, you know, it just, it, even if it looks a, a great product, it just doesn't look good on paper, right? People are going to say, oh, it's too heavy. And, you know, that spins negatively. Um, but, you're going to compromise something at some point if you're chasing being the lightest. And I think for a trail shoe, there's so many aspects that we we didn't want to compromise, right? We didn't want to give up downhill stability to be lightest. That's one thing, right? If that upper's not there, if you're not secure, you're not going to be able to run as well downhill or there becomes a longevity thing. If it's too light, if your foams are too light, they're just not going to hold up. It's kind of simple, simple physics that there's not enough material there. And I think there's also that thing we hear from runners is, you know, weight is one thing as a spec, how it feels on your foot is another. Um, there are things that maybe aren't the lightest, but they don't feel heavy on the foot. And that, you know, I think is quite a subjective thing, but I, we do hear enough people talk about it, that it, it, it is a thing. So how it's balanced on the foot, how it, um, how it's distributed within that product can matter as well. Yeah. And I think where 
biomechanics can help in these kinds of areas are if you come up with certain variables that are more outcome variables. Like I would argue the weight of the shoe, the heel to toe drop, those are sort of inputs into the runner. The outcomes are how quickly, how efficiently, how much ankle stability, how much heel hold they have. And for us at BOA, just as an example, we have a trail protocol that I'll put in the show notes that we have published. And whenever we test a trail shoe, we have five variables that we're going to look at while people are actually running on a trail. And we will try to work with the brand. And like in the case with you guys, you know, we've got a, a test coming up that we're looking at some more exploratory things. So can we understand which of the inputs that you guys changed, whether it was materialization or another factor, caused one of the outputs that I would say are more performance-oriented outputs to change. And that's where the magic can really happen. And it's always going to be an art and a science. It's, you know, to your point, it's never going to be a perfectly academic study. But can we use that to make sure that the product's better in the future? Or minimally, we just learn something interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. How have you guys seen biomechanics integrated across all the different brands you've worked with? Like, can you talk about some of the good, some of the bad maybe? And I'm sure it's differed by brand. You don't have to name names. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think we can talk about them. I mean, we're, there's nothing to disparage, I would say, at any of the places that we've, we've worked. I mean, to me, having a biomechanics lab and, and a team of experienced people is a gift and you know you're really fortunate to have those resources um you know nike even though it was a long time ago uh when i was there um you know it was an amazing facility and to have those kinds of brains and have that input um on testing i was i spent a lot of time in the in the soccer group there and there was really a great relationship uh between the groups the category and the biomechanics people there and a lot of people who really cared about the product and put because as you know there's a lot that needs to go into thinking of the appropriate tests and what are we going to look for and measure it's not just a simple like throw the shoe in a bin and out pops a bunch of data i mean so how you approach that stuff especially with a cleated sport um it's it's not interesting like looking at plantar pressures is one thing you know and knowing that you want to minimize you know the pressure that you're feeling from those cleats like it's a worthy goal but um to what end you know what i mean obviously um there's more to the game than just feeling comfortable in in your cleat so um you know i would say that that was a a great resource at Puma, the resources were more modest, um, but they were still there and, you know, prioritized in a, and it was a very different type of brand, right? Puma was, is, uh, you know, within a part of a luxury holding group. So there's different focus. There's a lot more lifestyle product, but again, there's a core group of people there who really care about science and performance. It's just a smaller, smaller resource, I would say. And, and, um, and then at Under Armour, it was different because we were able to help build that team. So some of some of the best minds that we knew of, we tried to recruit and get them in and uh, help us build out the capabilities and, you know, take some of the learnings from Nike. Um, we Jeff Bashada, who, who came and worked for us and I knew at Nike, is a great thinker and, a, in my opinion, was a great blend of having the science but also understanding that the science needs to get applied to products and understanding that business and you know working with him was was always a pleasure and so those relationships and that that again that balance of commercial and science i think we struck a pretty good balance at uh, under armor at the time and um 
you know, being able to build a lab and have force plates built into the floor and make that process smoother and easier and faster was, um, was a privilege. So it was always something that I love. Maybe it's more the engineering side of me, but I, I feel like designers who get access to that stuff and who can lean into it, even if you don't do it for every product to, to use that when it's appropriate is um, a pretty special process. For sure. How about you, Dave? I would, yeah, I would just say one similar experiences, I, I, I guess, cause Kevin, <laughs> Kevin and I worked together for so long, but um, I, I would say that um, one key difference, at least in my experience, um, I won't speak for Kevin is that um, with Under Armour, they were very, um, let's say, open to more open source collaboration with partners outside of Under Armour, um, which is um, which great, is really great good. Point. Great because you can leverage you can leverage you know resources and um, expertise that you don't have in the building where maybe some of the other companies that we talked about are a bit more um, not saying they don't have amazing facilities, amazing staff, but a bit more insular um, and, and want to do it with, within the building only. And so there's just a a different approach. And I I guess it kind of goes back to um, Under Armour kind of has this, you know, founder led entrepreneur, entrepreneurial uh, spirit about it. And that I think kind of, um, you know, maybe bled over into the innovation side and the, and the testing side as well. So, yeah, that's a, that's a really cool uh, point of feedback. And it's definitely something we've seen, you know, running the lab at BOA. I've always been a just collaborative person by nature and probably why I'm doing this podcast. I like talking to people. I like learning about their backgrounds. And so we share all of our code. We open source a lot of our data just because we think net net it's going to cause the future of innovation, footwear, materials, and methods to improve. And a great example, you know, is actually way back in 1980 or so, Ned Frederick, who started the lab at Nike, he published a few papers showing at that time, like nobody talks about this, but they had a shoe that was 2.8% more economical than a previous version of the shoe. And it was through a combination of mass reduction, um, using AirPods, and using different foams just compared with a normal EVA shoe. And, you know, basically they redid that in 2016. And so I, it's just pretty cool to see that was actually out in the literature for a long time. Those methods, the, the ideas are out there and it's getting reused. One other interesting thing that, you know, has come up in the scientific realm with respect to what you guys are talking about. I'm curious to get your take on this. I've heard from a few people um, at different brands and as well as different sort of tech startups trying to make lasts basically 3d print off someone's foot sometimes people actually don't like how that feels and so you guys talked mm-hmm. a lot about fit and how you've honed that and, and use qualitative feedback like so maybe just matching someone's foot isn't great and like how do you guys think about that no I, that's exactly right and i think we've had that experience both in footwear and apparel um you know, there's a, a lot of great scanning technology. You can get a person's anatomy one to one, and that allows you, in theory, to build one to one. And that's where the, you know, maybe to your point or question earlier around surprises with science is that building directly to that really doesn't guarantee it's going to be any better than um, an existing last almost. And in the case of footwear, because what you learn is there's a, very personal perception of fit. So, and, and almost nobody wants that shoe to fit directly close to their foot all the way around, uh, one 
a lot of people don't like how their feet look. So if they see a, a shape that's an exact mimic of their foot, it's a, it can become a visual turnoff. But beyond that, the, the, the fit, you know, some people like a lot of space in the toes. They like to feel the toes moving around. If you talk to a soccer player, they're used to, you know, almost sizing down a size to get a tighter fit and that leading to what they think is better performance. I think some of these myths and some of these things are, are changing, but it's, it's fit is such a subjective thing that having the foot as a basis is just a starting point. And then you have to figure out, okay, how do I make this you know, adapt this so that they'll like this fit. And that's an iterative process. It could take two or three rounds of building product before you get it right or more. Um, and then on top of that, there's a a lot of other aspects to fit, you know, how the shoe feels on, on the bottom of the foot, the type of closure system, as you well know, the material itself, how stiff that is. These all contribute to that perception of fit that make that's scan of their foot, just another starting point. It's really, it's no answer. Yeah. I, re- I remember to that point, I mean, it's just a funny little, <laughs> I don't know why that I always think of this when that, this, this kind of conversation comes up around fit and one of one, I think we were doing a one of one study of sorts. I don't exactly remember, but I remember the co-founder at Under Armour at the time, uh, Kip Folks, who was there and his basic response back to me was like, I don't know, Dave, uh, soft foam under my foot feels pretty good. You know, basically <laughs> saying like, the soft foam will fill the fill the voids, and I don't know if I need this, you know, one of one thing. So you know, there you go. <laughs> yeah, we had we had gone to the trouble when we were doing speed form at Under Armour. It was a molded technology; you could, could really mold the. the the shoe in a different way. It was created in a different way. It wasn't lasted in a typical fashion. And in the innovation side, we thought, okay, let's, let's see if we can make a one-to-one mold based off of a scan for a performance product. So we were working with Natasha Hastings at the time and we made a one-to-one of her foot for a spike. And, um, you know, short, short version is it, it didn't wind up working. It just wasn't, it was not that straightforward. Not to mention, you've got to then do the tooling specifically to that um, as well. You know, so it's a it's no silver bullet. And I think you know these we see a lot of scanning technology showing up in retail stores. And you know, I this is not an, an intention to to bag on any of that technology. I just, I just feel like it's still so new that it's really not solving the problems yet because. What that has to go to once they scan your foot is then trying to figure out, well, which brand fits you the well, fits you the best based on that. And there's interpretation there. Even if you take internal volume scans of every brand and every every shoe model out there, in my experience, and I go through it every year or so just to see how it's progressing. And, you know, when you get one recommendation that comes off your scan, you try that shoe on, it doesn't fit you. Well, immediately your confidence is lost in that technology. And so I think it has a ways to go. I, I don't know that it's um, ever going to be, a, you know, like a big solve. I think it'll be another tool that people can use. It'll get better over time. But um, to date, it's been no silver bullet. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, we're doing again to, to use the quote of a master's thesis every two weeks. We get a lot of people in the lab and we've got foot scans of all of them. And one of the most interesting things to me is we find there are certain areas where you really want hold 
and you want to have pressure on top of the foot that's holding you in place. And there are certain areas that people absolutely hate having too much hold and actually decreases their performance. For certain parts of the middle of the foot, for example, you want to have sort of relief as you know, the speed land works as a number of shoes probably already know this um, sort of maybe we're proving what people intuitively feel anyway. But it's really interesting to see this play out numerically across all the data we have. Guys, this has Good. been so incredibly helpful. Go ahead, Kevin. <laughs> I, I, I was just going to say it's, it's, you know, a constant problem to solve in footwear. Fit is really, really difficult. Feet shapes vary so widely people's perception of good fit the bony structures of the foot vary you know some people have really pronounced veins and tendons across the top of the foot that make them really susceptible and sensitive to pressures um same for you know the lateral parts you know you've got a fifth medhead prominence or um the perineal tendons that run under the malleolus that you know can be problematic for people in certain products and you know these are it's impossible to solve for everybody, you know, so it's really a matter of, again, decision making and, and doing the best you can. And it, that's what keeps it interesting. I will say it's just it's never dull because you've always got these really challenging problems to address. And I did want to say, um, you know, I, I wanted to just thank you guys for the time because it's, in my mind, it's been a really interesting conversation. And I know a lot of people either want some more TAMs or they want the uh, Cam Haynes uh, to come out soon. So I don't want to hold you for too long. But if I could just ask you one last thing that you want to close up on it. Are there any other things you want the audience to know maybe about the art and science of creating footwear? You guys are doing it in a very unique way at Speedland that I think is a super interesting just case study to understand. And it's made shoes that a lot of people really like. So if we could just end on there, I'd love that. I'll just say on... on on my side, you know, we're, Speedland, we always take kind of an athlete-centric approach. I mean, it's the core. It's one of our core DNA, you know, statements. That's who we are. But I think, um, honestly, how we're working, um, and when we get a chance to work um, with you, Dan, and the, Bo and the BOA team, I think that's kind of the, the perfect scenario for us where we get to work with our elites um, out in the field. They get to also work with you in the lab. And then you actually take the elites out into the field as well and work with them. Um, I, I think that's kind of the, the, the secret sauce is um, kind of being able to traverse um, from the actual trail into the lab and back to the actual trail and um, use data to kind of refine what we're doing. And then, you know, hopefully collaboratively work back and forth to, uh, you know, optimize the design. So. I think that method of working, um, at least for us uh, at Speedland, has, has been, you know, really, really great and, you know, kind of really fluid as well. So thank you for that. Yeah, I would I would add, you know, we'd love that collaborative thing. We, we like collaborating with partners who can teach us things and show us new and better ways of, of doing things. We're super open to that. And I think to circle back to what you mentioned earlier, that spirit of our speed hack show, um, you know, it lives on in the sense that we believe sometimes people know what's best for them. And we want to offer a platform that allows them to change things and customize and make, make it just right for them. The removable plate being able to change the stiffness of your product is one example. Um, but, you know, we're doing other things and looking at a lot of other things um, and ways to enable people to, to do that. You know, the shoe is a, 
it's a special piece of equipment, but that doesn't mean we want people to be scared about, you know, kind of hacking their own products and trying new things because that's often the way that uh, you get to the best solution for you. And so we, we intend to keep on leaning into that and enabling people to find the best fit, the best performance for their trail product. Yeah. And I encourage anybody listening, if you haven't watched the speed hack videos to go back at, during early COVID, I remember watching a number of those and being endlessly entertained. <laughs> I think seeing an alpha fly turn into a mountain bike shoe or that uh, Hoka yes. downhill shoe, get some variable tooling. I was yes. a big fan. <laughs> Well, nice. thanks. And Thank I mean, you. that was extreme and that was entertainment, but we, we do think that there's, there's learnings there that carry over into Speedland today. And, you know, we, we also encourage people to reach out to us. You know, we, we're happy to coach people through some of those changes. If you have an idea or you're wondering, can I do this? Can I do that? We have those conversations more and more, which is pretty exciting for us. You know, um, we, we realize that that's catching on a bit, that this idea of what we see in ski boots and what we see in cycling, where people go to an expert and get something fit for them. Um, there's nothing like that in, in the running space. And, and we'd love to be the brand that enables that for, for people. And, and so that's definitely something that we, uh, we see more of coming. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much. It's been another episode of the Science of Performance podcast. Thanks again, Dave and Kevin. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Science of Performance podcast. It's been a blast talking about these topics, and I hope you have some questions as well. I'm going to do a final episode after all seven episodes air, where I'm going to answer any outstanding listener questions. So please feel free to drop those in an email to research at boatechnology.com, or if you're a free trail member, you can put this in the forum. Thank you. Thank you.